The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome to the Kotke Ride Home for Wednesday, January 20th, 2021. I'm Jackson Bird. New findings into the cannibalism of baby megalodons. Teaching AIs to become our teachers. And The Great Gatsby has only been in the public domain for 20 days, and things are already getting weird. Here are some of the cool things from the news today. Megalodons, the fearsome 50-foot-long predecessor to today's shark that went extinct around 3 million years ago. They could weigh upwards of 100,000 pounds, and their massive jaws could snap with a force of about 100,000 newtons. And now, a new study published earlier this month in the journal Historical Biology sheds light on megalodon babies, emphasizing just how brutish the creatures were. Using parts of teeth and backbones from the most complete existing megalodon skeleton, Dr. Kenshu Shimada, lead author of the study, and his team were able to estimate that megalodons were probably six feet in length when they were born. Quoting the New York Times, To reach such a staggering size, burgeoning megs may have snacked on each other while still in the womb, Dr. Shimada said. Most sharks hatch from eggs inside their mother's bodies, then are birthed as live young. But the pups of some species don't take kindly to roommates. Once hatched, they will begin to casually devour their unhatched siblings, which helps them beef up before being born. It's this big, calorie-dense, nutritious meal that can help those embryos get bigger faster, said Allison Bronson, who studies the evolution of fish at Humboldt State University in Arcata, California, but wasn't involved in the study. With that much heft in tow, many megs may have emerged ready to duke it out with potential predators, or at least dwarf a good number of them in size. A voracious appetite coupled with warm-bloodedness might have helped them snarf down plenty of prey, allowing the juvenile terrors to bulk up even more. End quote. Scientists are able to infer information about megalodons and megalodon babies based on a number of factors, including the concentric rings of tissue that mark annual growth on their vertebrae, kind of like tree rings. Now, megalodons, as you might imagine, having been extinct for a few million years, are not the easiest things to come by. Their skeletons are mostly cartilage, making fossils even more rare. And that most complete megalodon specimen used for this particular study is that of a middle-aged megalodon who lived and died about 15 million years ago, was discovered in Belgium in the 19th century, and clocked in at 30 feet long. The size of megalodon babies was estimated by back-calculating the size of this particular specimen. Now, other shark researchers have pointed out that there can be a lot of variation between individual sharks, and also that this particular study used a lot of data from the 1990s, back when researchers heavily relied on data from great white sharks to estimate megalodon figures. So there's a little bit of caution to be taken with these findings, but dang, how apex predator can you get to literally be devouring your siblings in the womb? 
And I like this little nod that the Times gave to the true Megalodon heroes here, the moms. Quote, Researchers can't know how difficult carrying and birthing a six-foot-plus pup might have been for megalomoms, but proportionately, while that baby is really big, so is the adult, shark researcher Jack Cooper said. At maximum size, some megalodons might have spanned nearly the length of a bowling lane. Plenty of space to house even a basketball player-sized embryo. End quote. Showing your work in science and math classes was often an annoying assignment, but it had an educational purpose in helping you learn the lesson more deeply and therefore be able to apply it in new ways for future challenges. Researchers like Forrest Agostinelli say the same is true of artificial intelligence algorithms. Being able to achieve a task, like folding proteins or playing chess, is one thing, but being able to explain how they did it is a whole other level. When you have AIs that can tell you how they did something that most humans struggle to do, Agostinelli writes in Fast Company, the AI can then teach us humans. We can learn from the AI just as the AI learns from us. Quoting Fast Company, Unfortunately, the minds of superhuman AIs are currently out of reach to us humans. AIs make terrible teachers and are what we in the computer science world call black boxes. A black box AI simply spits out solutions without giving reasons for its solutions. Computer scientists have been trying for decades to open this black box, and recent research has shown that many AI algorithms actually do think in ways that are similar to humans. For example, a computer trained to recognize animals will learn about different types of eyes and ears and will put this information together to correctly identify the animal. The effort to open up the black box is called explainable AI. End quote. Working at the University of South Carolina, Agostinelli and his colleagues are primarily using Rubik's Cubes to develop explainable AI. They have a site where people can see how their AI solved the Rubik's Cube, but the displayed solves don't explain the logic that the AI used. But, quoting again, solutions to the Rubik's Cube can be broken down into a few generalized steps. The first step, for example, could be to form a cross, while the second step could be to put the corner pieces in place. While the Rubik's Cube itself has more than 10 to the 19th power possible combinations, a generalized step-by-step -step guide is very easy to remember and is applicable in many different scenarios. Approaching a problem by breaking it down into steps is often the default manner in which people explain things to one another, and the Rubik's Cube naturally fits into this step-by-step -step framework, which gives us the opportunity to open the black box of our algorithm more easily. Creating AI algorithms that have this ability could allow people to collaborate with AI and break down a wide variety of complex problems into easy-to-understand steps. Our process starts with using one's own intuition to define a step-by-step -step plan thought to potentially solve a complex problem. The algorithm then looks at each individual step and gives feedback about which steps are possible, which are impossible, and ways the plan could be improved. The human then refines the initial plan using the device from the AI, and the process repeats until the problem is solved. The hope is that the person and the AI will eventually converge to a kind of mutual understanding. End quote. And so far, their algorithm is able to consider that human plan, suggest improvements, recognize plans that won't work, and suggest alternatives, thereby giving a step-by-step -step plan for a human to follow. 
In the future, it wants the algorithm to be able to teach people how to solve a Rubik's Cube and also apply this to other types of pathfinding problems like navigation, theorem proving, and chemical synthesis. The ultimate goal is tapping the intuition of humans and the supercomputing powers of machines to work together in a kind of symbiotic harmony, teaching one another and helping humans uncover all kinds of innovations and previously unsolved problems. On the first of this year, a bunch of books, songs, and movies from 1925 entered the public domain in the U.S., and most notably among them, The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. Though there have been a few film adaptations over the years, as of January 1st, no one seeking to adapt The Great Gatsby in any way would have to seek permission from or pay licensing fees to the Fitzgerald estate. Writing a bit cynically in the Washington Post, Ron Charles said, quote, the Fitzgerald Literary Estate and Scribner's, which has sold tens of millions of copies of Gatsby, no longer control this essential text of our cultural past. It's like a literary version of Pfizer losing its patent to Lipitor. Generic versions will flood the market. Side effects may include cliches and overfamiliarity. If you experience continued irritation, consult your English teacher. Finally set loose in the public domain, Gatsby is now the common property of creative artists and unscrupulous entrepreneurs who will run faster, stretch out their arms farther. We'll see new illustrated editions, scholarly editions, cheap knockoff editions, beware, and editions with introductions by John Grisham and others. Fitzgerald's lines could make their way into more songs, plays, and operas. I suspect Nick will finally come out of the closet, and those East Egg lushes will reappear in the 1420s, the 1720s, and space. We might endure radical movie adaptations that will make us nostalgic even for Baz Luhrmann's authorized desecration in 2013. End quote. While none of Charles's predictions have come to pass just yet, a few folks were anticipating the release into the public domain and have hit the ground running. Like writer Michael Ferris Smith, who wrote a novel called Nick, about Great Gatsby narrator Nick Carraway's life in the years leading up to the events of the original story. Written several years ago, Nick was officially published on the first Tuesday of this year. Also already released is the self-published The Great Gatsby Undead by Kristen Briggs, which fills the required vampire adaptation quota. There's also the absolutely stunning graphic novel version of the book from Candlewick Press illustrated in watercolor by Kay Woodman Maynard. It is seriously gorgeous. Go check out the photos at the CNET link in the show notes to see it for yourself. But apart from published spin-offs and other book adaptations, people are having fun with less traditional forms of creative interpretation. For example, NPR's economics podcast Planet Money devoted their most recent episode to reading The Great Gatsby in its entirety. Literally, the episode is four and a half hours long and is basically a feed dump of an audiobook, but read by their team and with some pretty great music and the sound quality you'd expect from NPR. In addition to a brief explanation of copyright law and public domain, they preface the reading by pointing out that The Great Gatsby is really all about money, why people want money, what they do when they get it, and what money does to them. So it fits, and also adheres to the kind of chaotic energy that Planet Money has been leaning into more and more lately. 
And speaking of chaotic energy, writer Ben Crew has penned a 104-page screenplay of The Muppets Present The Great Gatsby. It started as a viral post on the subreddit R Movies saying that there should be a Muppets adaptation of The Great Gatsby, and Ben Crew really went for it. He cast the whole thing with Muppets and human actors, created a poster, wrote original songs, and absolutely nails the humor and characterization of every Muppet. I mean, it's seriously impressive. It features Kermit as Jay Gatsby and Miss Piggy as Daisy, of course. Narrator Nick Carraway is meant to be played by a human with the Dreamcast suggestion of Tom Holland. Jordan Baker is also played by a human but suggested to be an unknown. All of the Muppets make appearances in other ways, small and large, like Scooter as Owl Eyes and Dr. Teeth and the Electric Mayhem playing at Gatsby's party. Gonzo and Rizzo play Fitz and Gerald, taking on a similar fourth-wall-breaking narrator role like they do in A Muppet Christmas Carol. You can read the whole thing at the link in the show notes, and if you get super into it, there is also now a subreddit devoted entirely to trying to make this movie a reality. And apart from Crew being an exceptionally talented writer and this whole thing just being kind of funny, why is this Muppet adaptation such a popular idea? Ian Carlos Campbell at The Verge posited, quote, There's a real demand for Muppet adaptations, and I think the reason is twofold. First, seeing a puppet perform a traditionally human role is inherently funny. And second, seeing human emotions in a non-human character allows for new connections to the feelings at the core of these stories. We can often have an easier time finding the humanity in the living toys of Toy Story than in our own neighbors. End quote. Campbell, for his part, would like to see The Great Gatsby and basically the entire canon of works that are now in the public domain adapted by the Muppets. And interestingly, he takes this whole thing back to the copyright issue from another angle. Disney, the most notorious in the fight for extending copyrights, owns the Muppets. And as Campbell points out, the earliest copyrights on Muppet characters won't expire until 2050, if that. Which means, quoting Campbell in The Verge, To actually produce my epic puppet tale of disillusionment with the American dream would require Disney to dip into the same public domain where it seemingly doesn't want its own characters to wind up. End quote. So fan creations like that of Ben Crew will remain relegated to unauthorized internet playgrounds unless Disney actually greenlights it, because while The Great Gatsby may now be in the public domain, the Muppets remain under the watchful owl eyes of the Walt Disney Company. Though if you do need your Muppet kick, all five seasons of The Muppet Show are debuting on Disney Plus on February 19th, and it is the first time that seasons four and five have actually been available in any legal form since they were aired in syndication in the 90s. So for Muppet fans, it's kind of a big deal. That is it for today. As always, this show was produced by Ride Home Media and Kotki.org. I am Jackson Bird, and I'm going to go work on developing an AI that can successfully explain the symbolism of Dr. T.J. Eckelberg's eyes in The Great Gatsby. I hope you have had a fantastic day, and I will talk to you again tomorrow.